your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 6. Out of all of God's attributes, one of his attributes is probably the most maligned. Liberal scholars attempt to explain it away. Unbelievers try to ignore it. Lukewarm Christians play it down, but God doesn't change. His attribute specifically that I'm speaking of, is his wrath. It's an attribute of God, his wrath. It's an attribute that probably if you were to do a poll of pastors in America and ask them what would be your favorite attribute to preach on, I'm fairly sure it would be the least favorite. And for that reason, if we do not preach expositorily, through books of the Bible, we would be very prone as pastors to do what? Avoid it, right? But as you make your way through the Bible, you really can't avoid it <laughs> because everywhere you look, it's interesting that God's word starts in Genesis and very soon after Genesis 1, 2, 3, boom, wrath comes. Judgment comes. Matter of fact, we have probably the one of the greatest displays of God's wrath found in the very first book of Genesis. One of the greatest displays found in all of the history of humanity found in Genesis 6. Many conservative uh, scholars would say that it is estimated that between 2 and 10 Billion people were on the earth at the time of the flood. Two and ten billion people. Think about that for a second. And how many survived? Eight. Eight people. When God judged the world in his wrath, his just wrath, billions of people died. How does it sit? What do you think of? This isn't the stuff that we often meditate on, is it? We run to the love of God, but we don't often meditate on the doctrine of God's wrath. But folks, his wrath is not limited to just the Old Testament. Uh, often you've probably heard it. Well, God's a God of justice in the Old Testament and wrath. But ladies and gentlemen, his wrath does not stop in the New Testament. God does not change. He is a holy and just God. And his holiness and his justice de demands that his wrath be on display. That's why we have Romans 1.18, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, correct? God is a wrathful God. Why? 
because he absolutely hates sin. He intensely hates sin. You could define God's wrath this way. Grudem does it well. It means he intensely hates all sin. And again, what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. Not obeying him, not honoring him, not thanking him. Anytime that we fall short of God's righteous standard. He hates sin. And his hatred for sin deserves and demands a proper response. And that is his wrath. In the New Testament, we all have John 3.16, right? Look over there real quick. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We all get it. John 3.16, right? We could probably do a just a, a joint quote, right? Everybody's got it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life, right? But do we memorize John 3.36. Look at John 3.36. This one's not the one we memorize. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Wow. That one doesn't come to mind, does it? Jesus said the same thing in the same phrase. In the same time, discussing to Nicodemus, telling him, look, faith in Christ results in obedience to the Son. And when you obey the Son, you have eternal life. But if you don't obey the Son, you don't have genuine faith in Christ, then the wrath of God abides on you, Nicodemus. God doesn't change. God is the one and only creator, sustainer of the entire earth. Why are you breathing right now? Answer, God. Why are you here today? Answer, God. Why did your car survive and you get here safely? Answer, God. He created you. He sustains you. He gives you breath. He gives you life. He gives you food. He gives you everything you need for life. And so God deserves what? All worship and obedience and thankfulness and gratitude. And ladies and gentlemen, that's where we find our joy. That's where we find our delight. That's where we find our satisfaction. God deserves our worship, correct? And so we find our satisfaction in him. God has established a plan, too, to restore this evil-filled world to its rightful place. To make things right. And that's what we're in in the middle of in Revelation chapter 6. And 4 and 5 we saw the worship scene. And everybody begins to worship God. Because God says that's it. I am going to begin the plan to restore the creation to the way it's supposed to be. The creation is going to worship God. The creation is going to honor God. And all of creation is going to find their joy and their delight in the one they were created to joy and delight in. And so what does the creation do 
as the Lamb comes up and gets the title deed of the earth and begins to open up the scrolls that's going to unleash the wrath of God to purify the world and restore it to its rightful place. What does the creation do? It worships. Remember, we start, stopped at Revelation 5 and saw this beautiful worship scene in verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven, this is anticipatory of all that being completed, and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So in anticipation of this happening, all of creation does what? Worships. Just a side note here. As you anticipate a sermon on wrath and the wrath of God, does it bring about worship in your heart? It should. Why? Because I don't want to know a God that I make up in my own mind. I want to know the God of the Bible. I want to know the God who made me. And I want to know him. And I want to serve him. Is that your heart's cry? Let me reveal him to you from the scriptures. Let's look at our passage. Revelation 6, 1 to 8. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a glimpse into your glory and your holiness. We pray that you will give us humble hearts to hear your word. Help us to embrace your word, to examine our hearts, to see your intense Hatred for sin as it begins to unfold 
in the revelation. Help us, Lord, now to respond appropriately to your word and to be changed by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the first four acts of wrath initiated by the Lamb. They are waves of wrath, literally. My prayer is is that while we're studying the wrath of God, we will be provoked to share the gospel in light of God's coming judgment. I also pray that as we study the wrath of God, our own personal understanding of God's justice and holiness and hatred for sin will grow. Folks, I, I, I'm, I'm certain a good, fresh glimpse of God's wrath will help purify us and give us a fresh understanding of why we should hate our own sin, being believers. But I'm also hoping to share with you that there is mercy found in this gracious and kind God that is both holy, just, wrathful, and also gracious and kind. God has provided a way to avoid this wrath. And that's good news. The wrath of the land comes in waves as mentioned. As we will discover over the length of our study, the waves cover a period of roughly seven years. And it keeps growing and growing and growing. Today we're going to cover the first four sealed judgments initiated by the lamb that was slain. Again, this is the son of God initiating and bringing these about because he is both the Lamb of God and the Lord God. First, notice the first wave, the wave of deceptive peace. The wave of deceptive peace. It's found in verse 1 and 2. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with the voice of thunder, Come. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. Notice, the lamb opened the seal. The opening of the seal initiates the events. Again, the scroll was the title deed of the world. And now the lamb is opening it up. In the process of opening the seals, he's beginning to unfold the events. He's calling forth animals. Uh, The living beings are actually included in this as they call forth the first wave of terror and wrath the idea of the lamb is often limited to a gentle being right the lamb that was slain but i want you to get this in your mind that the lamb that was slain is also the lamb that will judge the lamb that has and will pour out wrath jesus is both a slain lamb but he is also a living wrathful lamb and he is the one that we must know the seals, again, that are opened are, are in a symbolic sense, and they go all the way through. They represent the re- final restoration of God's creation, how he's going to restore things and how he's going to bring it all about in this horrible wrath of tribulation. Well, some may argue that the tribulation doesn't start until the fifth seal. The wrath that unfolds in these first four seals looks like tribulation to me. It's very hard to avoid any kind of uh, looking at this and saying, oh, this is a pleasant time to be on the earth. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why I really believe and genuinely land that the wrath starts in verse 1 and therefore the church has already been raptured. Again, does it say the rapture here? No, it doesn't. 
But based on Paul and other contextual or uh, other uh, biblical passages, we get the idea of being saved from the wrath to come. Where do we get it? 1 Thessalonians 1. You can look at it real quick if you'd like. All genuine believers, it says 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, if this is wrath to come and it's being poured out by the Lamb, then it implies that the believers in Thessalonica, the genuine believers, are rescued from this wrath to come. We'll kind of get into this later, uh, but let's go ahead and look at this wrath. If you want to be a pre-wrath rapture guy, uh, I would suggest that the wrath starts in verse 1. The pre-wrath rapture guys often say, well, no, it's later on. As we unfold these, you tell me, is this wrath or not? If you want to be a post-trib rapture person that says afterwards, you have to say, okay, then we're going through this. The church is going to face the wrath of the Lamb, which is really difficult to go. You'll see as we go along, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But let's look at this first seal. One of the four living beings, this is the first one, the holy created beings are a part of the plan. They say, come. And the wave of false peace begins. We have this white horse. Horses in scripture often point to victory or majesty or power. It's important to note, and you're going to hear this again and again, that the horseman and the horse represent a movement, not necessarily a specific person. Trying to identify a specific person, I think that misses the point. The one sitting on the horse, again, is a movement or a wave more than a person. This is based on the fact that the next three points or seals also point to movements. And the movement is given a name in verse 4. Notice, death. The, the rider, horse rider is called death. And Hades is following after. It has this idea of more of a movement or a wave of events. And that's what it's probably pointing to. But I would say the Antichrist will be a part of this movement and a major part. In Matthew 24, 6, this movement is described as a movement of deceptive peace also. Jesus gave kind of a shorter form of this apocalypse. The Antichrist will be a part of this great movement. But notice it says this one sitting on it had a bow. But what's missing? Arrows. It's a bow. It applies and, and shows and points to the idea of conquering without violence, without an arrow. It will be a, a peace achieved by without the uh, uh, official war acts, but it will be deceptive. But notice it says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Conquer Again, the idea of a crown is the idea of ruling. But his ruling happens by way of no bloodshed. He is able to take over the world in effect, or this movement is able, this peace movement is able to come about without killing anyone or without any bloodshed. He will conquer and in order to conquer. This happens often. And boy, wouldn't you say that our world is lured into this? 
Our world is perfect for this kind of movement, especially now. <laughs> Always screaming peace, right? If somebody came along and said, hey, I got peace. Don't you want peace? Everything would be great. Just fall in line with me. It would fall in line real easy. You say, no, we wouldn't be that deceptive, deceived. It would never happen. MacArthur illustrates this well. Hitler, Nazi Germany, 1938 to 39. Listen to this. It may seem incredible that the world hovering on the brink of final disaster could be totally deceived, we might think, right? Is what he says. Yet that is it precisely what happened on a smaller scale at the outbreak of the most devastating war to date, World War II. Adolf Hitler spelled out in detail his plan to conquer in his book, Mein Kampf, published more than a decade before World War II began. Yet incredibly, the Western allies, especially Britain and France, persisted in believing Hitler's false claim to be a man of peace. They stood idly by as he re reoccupied the Rhineland, that was in, uh, given, taken away during World War I, demilitarized, and abrogating the Versailles Treaty, then annexed Austria, and then Czechoslovakia, desperate to appease Hitler and avoid war, the British Prime Minister, uh, Nevi uh, Chamberlain, met with the Nazi dictator at Munich in 1938. So what do you think happened? Do you remember who's read your history books? Upon his return, Chamberlain to England triumphantly waved a piece of paper containing a worthless pledge of peace from Hitler, which he claimed guaranteed peace with honor, peace for our time. When Winston Churchill, one of the few who never took to Hitler, rose up in the House of Commons to declare that England had suffered a total unmitigated defeat he was shouted down by angry members of parliament. The deception was nearly universal. Almost everyone misread Hitler's intentions. Only after he invaded Poland in September 1939 did the Allies finally acknowledge the truth. By then, it was too late to avoid the catastrophe of the Second World War. Ladies and gentlemen, are we prone to this kind of thing? Absolutely. We are very prone. Somebody comes and says, peace, come behind me. We're all going to go, okay, the world will. It's a fact. Now, it's interesting to me that you must understand something, ladies and gentlemen. You say, well, this isn't the wrath of the Lamb. This is the wrath of the Antichrist. Wrong. Why? Look at verse 2 closely. A crown was given to him. Our little phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over throughout the Revelation. The Lamb breaks the seal and the Lamb grants the authority to this movement of peace. Why? Why? Why does the lamb allow deception? Why, folks? Think on this for a section. Just for a second. Why would God allow this deception to be rampant in his world? 
You're probably grappling with it a little bit, hopefully. And the answer is because God is a just God. And God can do what God wants to do to bring about righteousness on his creation. All those that are on the world at this time are in open rebellion to God. And God is allowed to judge. And the way he's judging is he's allowing someone else to come in and pull them away. Deception under the sovereign hand of God. Now, does that mean that God is the direct actor of the deception? No. But God in his amazing way can be sovereign over that deception. And because of his justice, he is bringing about justice and wrath on the evil world. This was a promise of peace that was short-lived, though. Notice the second wave of wrath, the wave of world wars. The wave of world wars. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. The second living being, again, one of the four living beings, the highest of God's creation, is participating in the judgment of the Lamb. Again, this initiates the come, initiates the wave of world wars or the wave of wars of, uh, or murders. He went out. A slightly different use and how it's worded, but again, it's the same concept of a movement or a wave. The red horse here, after conquering horses probably in views, another one here, but this time it's red, which probably points to what? Blood and death, right? Blood conquering through bloodshed. I think the wave... Have uh, the wave movements or these movements kind of linger too. I don't think it's like, okay, we have war and then war stops and the next one starts. I think it just keeps going. <laughs> you have this idea of, and notice again, and it's so important. Look in verse 4. And another red horse went out and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. That phrase again, it keeps coming up, doesn't it? It was granted to take peace. Again, the idea is who is in control? God. God is bringing out this judgment. He says, look. Now, go, take peace. It reminds me so much of how we're dealing with the children of Israel with Babylon, right? Babylon was a wicked, wicked nation, right? What were they used? They were used by God to do what? Judge Israel for their denial of God and and not following his laws that he had said. Here's the same concept. God is using war in this movement to bring about judgment on what? The creation for their, their denial of God. It was granted to take peace. And folks, this is much worse than World War I or II. This is... It, again, it just develops this whole concept of war and slaying one another. And men will slay one another. Notice it says the reason it was given power to take peace is in order that men may slay one another. They might slay one another. The wicked will kill one another. People will turn on each other. 
And we see glimpses of this in our society today. But one day, it will be much worse. We can't even comprehend how bad it will be. A day when wickedness will reign and the consciences will be so seared that murder will be the first choice, not the last choice of a criminal. Can you imagine? I can't imagine being a police officer during this time. It wouldn't be a fun thing. I guess the police officer would shoot first. That's questions later. It'd be, take him out. Oh, there's another wicked one. Boom. But then you wouldn't know whether or not the police officer was right or wrong. Right? Everybody. Peace is taken, and what happens? Evil happens. We see glimpses of that, of this kind of evilness already in our world, don't we? I mean, this week we heard about that guy in the Craigslist, right? The Craigslist killer. Uh, I, I found it interesting to me that often these people, it's almost like that, B, I, I forget, I think it was the BDK, or I'm probably saying the wrong initials or what, B, I, BTK, thank you, uh, killer, where he was a quote-unquote in his church for 20 years or something, but was murdering people, left and right. You get this whole concept of how there's this evilness in man. It's everywhere. But we look at it and we say, oh, well, that guy's bad. That Craigslist killer, he was really bad. But me, I'm not, I don't have that kind of wickedness. I'm not prone that way. My, my family members are good people. <laughs> We're relatively good people. But during this time, when that movement starts of murder and God takes away, guess what? Restraints are taken away. Consciences are completely seared. And everybody looks at their neighbor and says, hey, I want your TV. It's just rampant evil. Wars everywhere. I don't want to be there, do you? I don't want to face this kind of thing. Again, I want you to see a very important point here. It's almost like God is giving mankind what its heart wants to do. When Jesus says this, he says, when you look upon a, a brother or sister with hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying the heart is wicked. You have the propensity within your heart to murder. Everybody in this room has that propensity. Take away God's restraining influence that his common grace is keeping us all alive and not killing each other. Take away that, and guess what? It's an ugly place to be. Do you want to be here? I don't want to. Ladies and gentlemen, but this is what we deserve. This is what the creation deserves because they're so rebellious. We're so rebellious apart from God that we deserve this. Notice the third wave. So two waves of wrath have come from the Lamb and have occurred. Now it's the third wave, the wave of worldwide famine. The third living being says, right, 
When he had broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now again, this is most likely a reference to a movement or a wave of famine that will come over the entire world. The black horse appoints to death again. And the rider again is pointing to a movement. Matthew 24, 7 talks about famines that will follow the wars. Very similar. Scales in the hand is representative of the need for carefully weighing the food. Be careful. Watch it closely. Measure out a small amount of food for a large amount of money in that day. In other words, what? Famine. People are going to starve to death. Is this wrath? Absolutely. And who's it coming from? Interesting. You say, well, Mike, it was given, isn't there? Oh, but look closely at verse 6. Look closely. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, hmm, what's in the center of the four living creatures, people that were here for Revelation 4 and 5? God. What's this saying? God himself is saying, there is going to be a famine. God, in his sovereignty, has ordained a gigantic famine on the land. On all of the world. Why? Because mankind is in rebellion towards God. And he is bringing about the purifying effect of his wrath on the world. And it's what the world deserves. Right? People are going to starve to death. A quart of wheat for a denarius. The concept is a small amount of food. Cost an extreme amount of wage. Like I said, a day's wage gets enough for a small meal. Desperate conditions have gotten worse. Not only is everyone killing each other, the food supply is unable to support the world. It appears millions and maybe billions will starve to death. Why does he say here, don't hurt the oil and the wine? I think this is a caution to avoid hurting the things that are extremely important for preparing the food. Everything is in short supply. Wine was used as a means of purification previously, as well as, obviously, the oil to cook things. So food is scarce, and everyone is cautious with anything used to prepare the food. Starvation will be commonplace in the day of the wrath of the Lamb. For a country like ours, I was thinking on this, we can't even comprehend it. I would suggest that America will be some people say, well, is America mentioned in the last days and stuff? No, it, it, it doesn't have any references or anything. I suggest that we're so weak and pansy and wimpy that uh, any kind of famine comes along, our world's going to, our, our United States is going to be. <laughs> we're a bunch of wimpy people. I mean, look at, look at the two events that are happening right now. Our crisis Financial crisis, right? Is it a financial crisis? I mean, yes. 
what, 10, 12%, at worst 12% unemployment, right? At real bad, right? 12%. But I heard, my dad told me this week that he says, I got laid off. Um, the government is paying my medical insurance for the next year. A full medical insurance. And my dad, let me tell you, folks, when they laid him off, they gave him a severance package, and he was fine. <laughs> He's fine. He doesn't need it. But the government's paying for it. What's the point? We are wimpy people. We don't know what starvation's like, do we? We don't know. Think about, just for a second, if we were put over in one of those third world countries. <laughs> put us in Africa for, put 50,000 Americans in Africa with no food. What would they do? They'd die immediately. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think our, our country would probably be one of the very first to take the wrath and succumb. We're not ready for the wrath of the Lamb. Notice fourth wave. It gets worse. I know y'all are going to be like, man, are you going to make it through the tribulation before we all die? <laughs> We're just getting started. <laughs> Look at verse 7. <laughs> when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Woo! If this ain't wrath, what is it? <laughs> it looks like wrath to me, right? Again, was given as mentioned, who's sovereign over the judgment? The Lamb. Notice the one sitting on it is named Death. The writer's name gives away the movement. It's a movement of global death. So the personification is easier to identify here. The writer is death. Again, it's a wave of death. The death includes murders, pestilence, famine, wild animal attacks. John describes the scope in this passage. Look. Was given to them over a fourth of the earth. If it's parallel to population, that means close to 2 billion people if it happened now. We can't comprehend that number. Let me tell you why we can't comprehend it. 2 billion people. Never in the history of the world has any kind of death been like this. Ever. Not even close. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, what's America's size 300 million, roughly, 300 million, 2 billion, 2 billion die in just this one act of wrath, 2 billion, it's a lot, isn't it, man, that would be a time to be a mortician for sure, there's no way that people could afford it, it's impossible, Death everywhere. So it implies here Hades is with him, which is significant about Hades is what? Death, physical death is not the end, right? What's next? Hades, which is pointing to hell. 
Many people are killed and then face judgment. Hell. It was given authority to them. Again, was given the authority over a fourth of the earth. And what were the movements? How is this death accomplished? With sword? Heightening the wars that were already done and the murders that were already seen? It gets worse. With famines? So in other words, people starve more. More people starve to death. With pestilence. This is probably diseases or sicknesses that will cause great numbers of people to die. If you watch the news this week, oh, the hysteria over the swine flu. Oh, my. Have you watched the news any this week? We've got, I think, the last I heard, there was 109 confirmed cases in America. 109 in 21 states and still only one fatality. One. But it's the whole world is like, whoa, what are they going to do when this happens? <laughs> Two billion people die. They won't be able to keep up with the numbers. This is crazy high. This is wrath like we've never seen before. The Black Plague which was started in the 1300s, the total number of deaths worldwide is estimated at 75 million. Two billion. We still can't comprehend it, can we? We can't. We're not even close. And this one at the end really just floors me. We have a little phrase at the end. And by wild beasts of the earth. It's interesting, uh, MacArthur takes it that they're the rats. It could be some of the rats or something because they, you know, in the way the Black Plague was, it was supposedly, which is some people argue that's not true and whatever. But I'll tell you this, if people are starving, who else is starving? Animals. And they're going to eat. Real simple, folks, this is not good place to be at this time is it it's the wrath of the lamb now I'm sure that by this time the church has been raptured away why look at 310 revelation 310 talking to the church in Philadelphia he says because you have kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you from the hour of testing that the whole world or which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth Again, I think that the rapture's happened. Put real simple, though, folks. The events of chapter 6, we're beginning to see what does God think of sin? Does he hate sin? Yeah. The more I see this and the more we meditate on this and the more we think about this, what's it going to do? It's going to heighten our awareness of God's absolute intense hatred for sin and ladies and gentlemen that's what we need too right we need a hatred for our sin now in this time I do believe God will save some people we'll talk about them next week but these are saved during the tribulation and they will find themselves in a very difficult place the hardness of living through this tribulation will be enormous. 
more than anybody has ever faced in the history of the world. So how can we be assured that we're going to avoid this wrath? We see how bad it is, right? How bad is it? How intense is God's wrath? Pretty intense, right? We've seen four of the seal judgments, and the wrath's pretty intense, huh? Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to get, get worse next week. You'll see. The week after, sixth seal, it's pretty intense. What is the hope of the believer, though? How much does God hate sin? A lot. What did God do to pay for sin? That's so important. I want you all to get this. This is so important. Why do believers, genuine believers, love Christ so much? Why do we love him so much? Why is he just the greatest joy in all the thing, all the world to us? Why is he our biggest delight? The answer, because he took our wrath. That's why we love Christ. That's why we want to obey him. That's why we believe in him. That's why we long to live for Christ. Because Christ did something for us. Turn to Isaiah 53 and we'll close with this. Ladies and gentlemen, how many of you want to sign up for the wrath of the Lamb? (laughs) How many of you say, oh, I want the wrath of the Lamb. That's me. Put me on that list. I want to hang around and endure these four first four seal judgments. None of us, right? None of us want to face the wrath of the Lamb. So where's our hope found? Where do we find hope in this world? Because we're just as sinful, apart from God's grace, as the rest of the world, right? Where's our hope is found in Isaiah 53. Notice, talking about Jesus, hundreds of years before he came. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs He himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we were are, or we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to a slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord, get this folks, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Boy, is that not the most amazing picture? Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me closely. This is Jesus. And Jesus died to take your wrath. Trust in Christ and him alone. And you too will avoid the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve your mercy. Yet you have provided a Savior, the Lamb himself who was slain, to take the wrath that we deserve and to help us to avoid the wrath to come. Lord, help us to live for him. Help us to understand your justice. Help us to trust in the wrath and the glory and the justice and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We trust you. You are God. Take us now, Lord, and use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.